Habakkuk. One five. Towards the end of the Old Testament there. Habakkuk one five. Look among the nations and see and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Let's pray. Lord, I need you to fill me afresh with your spirit for this service. You know all the needs of the hearers. So God, would you use me for your purposes, for your glory? I pray you'd prepare your people's hearts to receive from you, Lord, a word of encouragement, a word of hope. Lord, that we would walk away in awe of you, God, praising you for you and you alone are worthy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably a little surprised everybody's thinking Matthew, right? We're going to Matthew. We had Malachi last week. Well, we're still on Route 66. The story of our redemption, but we're taking a little wayside stop here, okay? And I'll tell you what what I'm preaching about today. If you have a hard, actual copy of the Bible, and you turn to the end of Malachi, and then you see Matthew is ready to start, there's a blank page in between, and that's what I'm preaching on today. The blank page in the Bible, between the Old and the New Testament, the intertestamental period is what they call it. And the reason being is because it's foundational to understand that time frame in order to understand the New Testament. That time period is called the period of silence. It was 400 years where no prophet spoke or wrote, nothing was recorded, but God was busy working. And the main point today is this. The Lord is always sovereignly and wisely in the background making a way to glorify His name through the nations and in your life. That's the main point today. So now we're going to go through a little history lesson so we understand. I talked to Ron Poppy this week to, to get, make sure some of these numbers were correct. But anyway, what we have is the Old Testament closes with the Persian rule. Okay, so Persia is ruling the known world basically, and the Jews have returned from their exile in Babylon. It's about 400 B.C. And then something happens in 332 B.C. What happened is this. Jerusalem fell to the Greeks, to a guy that you're maybe familiar with and heard his name before, Alexander the Great. You didn't know Alexander the Great had anything to do with the Bible, but it had... He has a lot to do with the Bible. Because what happened is the Greeks were conquering the world at that time and what Alexander decided was he was going to cause that uh, the known world to be bonded together by Greek culture and language. It was known as the policy of Hellenization. Okay, so if you've heard that before, this comes in here. It comes into the Word of God, Hellenization. Because what happened was somewhere around 285 to 250 B.C., 70 noted Hebrew scholars took the Old Testament and because it was part of the Hellenization policy, translated it into Greek. 
So they took the Old Testament in Hebrew, translated it into Greek, what we know now today is called the Septuagint. So there's been times when we've preached up front, we said this, in the Septuagint, the, cop, the Greek copies of the scriptures, that had to do with Alexander the Great, Hellenization policy. And what occurred was that uh, it was called Septuagint, which means 70 for the 70 scholars. And that's why sometimes when you're reading and you're doing research in the Word of God, sometimes it'll just say LXX because that's the Roman numeral for 70. In other words, they're talking about this from the, this is what was from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And that's what we have. And what occurred here was amazing because God takes this man, Alexander the Great, and puts on his heart, you know, we're going we're gonna, to uh, cause the whole known world to be focused around Greek culture. And all of a sudden, and we're going to take the Hebrew scriptures and we're going to translate that. So now what had occurred was this. All of the Old Testament was now available to the known world to be able to read and understand who is this God of the Jews? Who is this? What, what do they believe in? Now the whole world could understand what that was and many Jews couldn't uh, speak Hebrew. Now they could actually read the Old Testament. It's amazing what God did right there. Take a look. I use this verse, Psalm 135. There we go. For I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps. God laid it upon Alexander the Great's heart to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And now the Old Testament was available. This was amazing. God was moving in history. Again, I say this all the time, you hear it here. History is not the story of man's history. It's his story, God's story, the story of Christ, the story of redemption. And we find that around 200 B.C., there was what we call the Seleucid Empire. Seleucid Empire, which is interesting because what they did was the Seleucid Empire seized Palestine. Guess who the Seleucid Empire would be in modern day? Iraq, Iran, and Syria, also Afghanistan. Isn't that interesting? So they take over, they seize Jerusalem in 200 B.C., and what they did was they instituted blasphemous policies against the Jewish religion. They erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy Temple. They slaughtered pigs on the altar and forced the priests to eat the meat. That's what they did. And what happened was these policies triggered what is known as the Maccabean Revolt, a group of Jews that said, enough is enough. And they rebelled against this, this uh, controlling faction there. And what happened was, for about 30 years, from 166 to 142 B.C., the Jews had a certain freedom in their worship. This was, as I said, known as the Maccabean Revolt. And something happened in 1964 B.C., in the Maccabean Revolt, that the Jews still celebrate today. 
what happened was is that they finally got the temple back, or Jerusalem back, and the temple, and they rededicated the temple. And today, the Jews celebrate that event in something that you and I hear all the time. Hanukkah. So when you hear Happy Hanukkah, that's what they're talking about. The Maccabean Revolt. And when they got the temple back and they reestablished it, it's a place of worship. During this time, two sects, actually three, but two sects in particular, emerged. Names of religious leaders that we're familiar with. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they were kind of formed during this time. These two religious groups had almost nothing in common politically, socially, or religiously. They were in constant opposition of each other. Constantly. Because they, had so, they were so different in their beliefs. I was going to go into that a little bit today, and I thought, no, that's kind of a New Testament thing. Talk about that later, uh, because otherwise this message would have been way too long. Anyway, it's long enough, right? Uh, what happened was, is this though, is that they both, they both emphasized superficial, non-essential religion. They had no concern for genuine inner spiritual life. They really didn't care for the welfare of others. They had that in common. And because of that, because of this spiritual commonness that they had, what we see in the New Testament many times is they're spoken of as if they were one group. Right? You read, and the Pharisees and Sadducees said or did, you know, and we kind of look at you know, we kind of look at it and we kind of think, oh, like Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were like the fifty three man roster, right? They're the main religious group. And then the Sadducees, they're like the, the practice squad. They're not the, no, they were two separate groups. And they were opposed to each other. It seems the only thing they had in common was coming against Christianity. Honestly, that's what it appears. But everything else they were opposed to each other on. So when we read the scriptures, so many times they're classified together because of that, that heart or lack of when it comes to spiritual matters. But there was also a third religious sect at that time that had very little influence on their time in their society. As a matter of fact, they're not even mentioned in the New Testament. But that particular group has a huge impact on the 20th century and on your and my life. Around 200 B.C. to 60. 8 AD, the Essenes were a religious group. They were secretive. They pulled away from the, the, the larger group because what happened is the, in the Maccabean revolt, they put somebody as high priest who was not part of the priestly line laid out in the Old Testament. So the Essenes said, oh no, oh no, the way you're doing this is wrong. He shouldn't be head. And so they pulled back and they kind of had their own little group. And what occurred was they spent much of their time copying Old Testament Scripture. That's what they did. And boy, did God use them. I'm going to take a look at a little Scripture to kind of lay the foundation before I tell you what they did. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That was the Essenes. They were cast-offs. They weren't part of the religious Jewish group that was messing things up. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that were not, that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God used this small faction of people. So we fast forward to 1947. And what happened was there was this um, little Arab shepherd boy who was looking for one of his goats. It was a little bit south, apparently, of um, Jericho. And he was looking for his lost goat, and he takes stones and he'd throw them into the cave because, you know, I'm lazy. I'm not going to climb into each cave and look. He throws a stone in. If you heard something move, you go in there. Throws a stone in one time, and something breaks. So this kid goes inside and he finds this jar filled with manuscripts written. They were the Essene manuscripts. And we know what happened that day as the beginning, the start of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, they go back to these guys named the Essenes. And what happened is that between the time of 1947 to 1956, they discovered in 11 caves over 600 scrolls and 40,000 fragments with about 30% of the fragments from every Old Testament book in the Bible except Esther. And until the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Old Testament manuscript copies were from 900 B.C. So we have a span of a thousand years, right? From the oldest at that time, 1946, to what they just discovered, thousand-year difference. And amazingly, what they found is this. The manuscripts are almost identical. Minor changes. If we could say today, it would be things like, they missed the word the, or something, you know, not important. They take Isaiah right next to each other. Whoa! And what that shows us is this. It shows us that there was accuracy in the transmission. Because here's an argument that people say all the time. How can you trust that what you have is God's Word? I mean, have you ever done the telephone line thing, right? You start something at the end of the line, and you got ten people, and you whisper it in their ear. And by the time it gets to the end, it's nothing like what was originally said. And that's what you're depending your Bible on? Well, first of all, they believed these were the very words of God, so they approached it very differently than if we're doing a telephone example. But what the Dead Sea Scrolls proved was that that didn't happen at all. There's a thousand years difference. And you can see the accuracy in which those copies were made. They didn't, it wasn't this uh, roughshod, you know, well, yeah, kind of, you know, like we, what we do today in the movies, right? You got the original document that somebody wrote, some book, and then they're going to make it into a movie and they're going to take liberties, right, with, with, the docu- with, with whatever the original was. They didn't do that back then. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were proof of that. That, you know what? These were copied word for word. This wasn't something that was lackadaisical. 
They took this seriously. And what happened is that the Dead Sea Scrolls ended the argument that the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' birth and Jesus' death were added after the fact. Oh yeah, they just put that in there in Micah after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the Dead Sea Scrolls destroyed all of that. They said, oh no, these are prophecies, these are the words of God. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us today is this. They give us more confidence that our Old Testament, the words that we are reading are the actual words that God had given to Moses and David and the prophets. I say more confidence because our confidence comes from the Word of God. God's Word says it is authoritative. And so we believe that because of God's Word. But we have more confidence because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so God uses this little group of people to, to give you and I a confidence in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's amazing. He takes the world power Alexander the Great and moves him into this area. And he says, You're gonna this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna you're gonna take these Old Testament scriptures and you're gonna put them in Greek so more people can read them and understand them, know who I am. And then this little group of people of, of nobodies off to the side, and you're gonna copy the scriptures, and then centuries later, there's gonna be this little Arab boy that's gonna find them. Can you imagine that God just laying on the heart? I, I think of these things all the time. And can you imagine being that, that the, the guy who's writing the scriptures? And you ask your boss, if you had a boss back then, where are we going to put all this stuff? I mean, you know, my house is full. And, you know, I saw some caves outside the city, you know, by Jericho. Why don't we just stick them there for now? It's kind of a dry place. They'll probably be okay. Right? God takes some little goat one day, in 1947, and a little goat strays, and it's the beginning of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Some little goat traveling somewhere, and an Arab kid, shepherd kid, throwing rocks in caves, and it affects us today. That is amazing. It is amazing what God has done. God had made the Old Testament available to all. Then he preserved the authenticity of the Old Testament through the Dead Sea Scrolls. And God wasn't done during those 400 years of silence. He was now literally going to make a way for the gospel to be spread around the world. What happened was that around 300 B.C., there was a group of people I'm sure you heard of before, the Romans. And they decided that it would be good to build roads. To all the known world. So in 300 B.C. they began what would end up being a 250,000 mile road network to all the, known area, all the areas of the known world at that time. It was called the Appian Way. Here's a map of what it ended up being. Look at the, all the roads they built. Unbelievable. I talked to Ron this week because I wanted to check back, make sure my history was accurate. And he told me something that I didn't know. His dad is a professional road builder. And he said that he has studied the Romans' roads that they built. And he said that these roads are still functional today. 
because of the way that they built them. They built them with extra calcium in the concrete. Apparently that caused it to last. And the other thing was this. He said they built the roads so that if you look, if this is the road, the foundation of the road goes like this, like a triangle. It's wider in the foundation than the top. He said those, those roads are going to last for another bunch of centuries. So what God was doing was the Lord was saying, you know what? I'm sending my son. And the gospel is going to spread worldwide. So I'll make roads for people to follow. And what we read in scripture then is we see when the Christians were being persecuted, they went to the ends of the known world and brought the gospel. God is moving the world power, Rome, for his purposes. He's moving and shaking them. And it doesn't end there. Because God's preparation was not now done. His preparation for the first coming of the Messiah. The promised Messiah. And so what God did was he took those 400 years of human history and he was moving and shaking and building and preparing the way for the first coming of the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would come at the absolute perfect time in history in the absolute perfect way, fully God and fully man. That's what God was doing those 400 years. Take a look at God's word. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That's a prophecy about Jesus. How is it fulfilled? Well, God continues to use the Roman Empire for his purposes. And he moves on the heart of the, Rome, the, the Caesar at that time. He says, oh, by the way, I'm going to use your own pride against you. You want to know how many people? You want to know how many people you're ruler over? So you're going to do a census. And that's going to move Joseph and Mary to a place they wouldn't have been normally. Look at it in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and then 4 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Ladies, when you're pregnant, do you want to leave the comfort of your home to go have a baby in a strange place? Ah. Ah. I never had to experience that, but I'm thinking no is the big answer to that one, right? But God had a prophecy. He said, my son is going to be born in Bethlehem. So God moves the entire Roman Empire, the top dog in the world at that time, and says, oh, I've got to get this timing just right. Right now you're going to cause this, everybody to be registered. And he moves upon this man, and Joseph and Mary have to leave their hometown and go and fulfill the prophecy. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God absolutely amazing? He is the one who is sovereign and in control of all things, not the world. I love this verse in here in in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
when the time was perfect. Because God had arranged everything in history. He took 400 years to line it all up, to get everything in place, just the perfect time. When the fullness of time came, God sent His Son. Jesus was fully God. And yet, He was also somehow fully man, because it says, born of a woman. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Only someone who was fully God and fully man could atone for our sins. Could live the perfect sinless life that God required to spend eternity in heaven with Him. We couldn't do it. We can't do it. Jesus did it. He came. He was born under the law. He fulfilled all the law. For who? To redeem those under the law. You and I. Because we failed. We couldn't meet the requirements of the law. And so Jesus comes, fully God, fully man, comes at the absolute perfect time the stage was set by the living God. And He comes, Emmanuel, God with us. He lives the perfect sinless life and He goes to the cross and is punished for sins that are not His own. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So that He would redeem us. The price paid for slaves. And He is punished for the sin of all who would believe. Who would do this? That they would believe by grace. Something you don't earn. It's a free gift. By grace. Through faith alone. Believing what Christ has done alone. And we would be saved. The beauty of the gospel. And God just takes human history and moves it as He wills. Just changing it. See the glory of our God in a blank page. That blank page represents the Lord's behind-the-scenes preparation for the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you have a physical Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Jude. And you'll notice something at the end of the book of Jude. Okay, I'll wait till you get there. Go to the book of Jude and go to the last verse, the book of Jude. What follows the last verse? A blank page. Oh, that's it. That's part of it. You see what I'm saying? There's a blank page there. There's a blank space. And the reason I say that is because, you see, God is still moving. He's still preparing things. Because the book of Revelation is how it all ends. That's it. It's finished. God's saying this is what it's going to look like when it's all done. When man's history on earth is done. So between the end of that book of Jude and the beginning of Revelation, that's today, brothers and sisters. That's the time you and I live in. And God is still working. But what He's doing now is He's preparing the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing We see the things. We see it in the news all over the place. We see what God is doing. We see what's happening in the nation of Israel. The enemy's coming against it. Guess what? That happened during the 400 years of of silence between the Old and the New Testament. The world is shaking. Who's going to rule it? The Persians did for a while, and then Alexander the Great, and then the Romans. And the whole time, God 
is moving. Because he is sovereign and he is all wise. And he is moving now, brothers and sisters. He is making a way to glorify his great name. That's why our hope for today is back to the main point. That the Lord is always sovereignly and wisely in the background, making a way to glorify his name through the nations and through your life. We're like those Essenes, not very big people, but God's using us. God's using us. Take a look at God's word. Isaiah 43:16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. You know what that's about? If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably prayed this prayer. Lord, would you make a way where there is no way? Sound like a familiar prayer? That's where it comes from because it's not in the Bible. But what this is talking about is it's talking about when Moses was standing at the, the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is behind him. And God made a way where there was no way. I, I love, I don't know if I saw it in a movie or whatever, if it was Moses or God speaking, but it was, it was this. It said, stand back and watch the glory of your God. And the Red Sea parted. See, God is sovereign in charge. Acts chapter 17, 26 through 27. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why do you live where you live? Because God determined that. That's what it says right here. Why do you live now? Because God determined that. Why did God put you where you live right now? To glorify His name. You have the neighbors that you have. Because God wants to give them hope through you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're there by God's decree. He puts you there in this time, 2023, for a purpose. And he placed you with certain boundaries, with your neighbors, to, bring, to, to communicate the glory of God to a world that is lost and hopeless. And they're just as scared as you can be when they look at the news. that they, would, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. But He sure feels like a, He's far from us sometimes, doesn't He? And it feels like that 400 years where He's silent. And you think, God, I've been praying about this for years, and nothing's changing. God, where are you? Why are you silent? Can you relate? God, I've been interceding and asking and nothing is changing. It feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And he says, but it seems like he's silent. It seems like he's inactive. It seems like he's distant. None of those things are true. Because he loves you. You matter to him. Those aren't true. God is working. He is moving. That's what's happening. In Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. All things. 
You see, we come into this place of, uh, where our faith is to be tested. Do we really believe God's word? That all things work for the good. Do you really believe that? That all things work for the good. What's happening in Israel right now? All things. What's happening in your life with the struggle that you're, you're facing, the issues that are challenging, do you believe that all things work for the good? Do you believe that all things are going according to the counsel of His will? You see, there's this, this place where our, our faith has to be boots on the ground where we believe this stuff. It's not just stuff we quote and then we go off or we say it to someone else. It's where we live with it day in and day out. It's faith that has feet. And we put our hope in God, not in the circumstances around us. So ask for faith to believe when it seems that Jesus is silent, that He isn't doing anything, or that He's distant and doesn't love you, because none of those things are true. The blank page in your Bible proves that. Right? It proves that. God loves you and he is working for his glory and your good. And I love what my sweetheart says. She says the story isn't written yet. You know, there's difficult things that we're facing. Look ahead and we go, well, you know what? The story isn't written yet. Well, I've been praying for how long? Yeah, the story isn't written yet. God's not done. God's not done. The story isn't written yet. What's going to happen to Israel? I don't know. The story isn't written yet. But God is the one who is sovereign over all things. He is the one. He is the one who is in charge, not man. And to take this word of God and believe it requires him to grant us the faith to believe. So ask him for it. Ask him for that faith. Say, God, I want to believe what your word says. That you work all things according to the counsel of your will. That all things work for the good for those who believe and are called according to His purpose. I'm either going to believe it or I'm not. And it's not based on how I feel. It's based on God's Word. Because our feelings will lie to us. So we believe what God's Word says or we don't. And with that, I would say this. Where do you find your hope? Where do you find your hope today in the struggles that you're facing or the news that you're reading? Go online. Maybe you actually still use an old school newspaper. Whatever it might be. Where do you find it? Go to the only source that really matters, the Word of God. That's where you find your hope. You go to the Word of God and you ask Him, Lord, would you please give me ears to hear? That's what we have to ask. So here's some Word of God for you. Maybe your ears will hear it. Take a look. The first one is just a quote I found from Tozer. Tozer. The Bible is not only a book which once was once spoken, but a book which is now speaking. Isaiah 55, 9 and 11. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. 
And when I started this and I read that verse and you thought, what has that got to do with anything? Now you see why, right? Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Notice it doesn't say be afraid. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I believe that's for today just as much as it was back then. Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Trust Him. Trust Him. And finally, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know, we can know these truths in our head, but we still read the news and we still get worried. We understand what's happening around us. And it's easy to be afraid. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you know what, cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. And there's a thing called the peace that passes understanding that God will give us. In the midst of all the turmoil and all the craziness, God will give us a peace. Saying, you know what, God, I can trust you. That's what he's talking about. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you find yourself worrying and in fear, go to him. You, by God's grace and God's mercy, are placed in this time, in the place where you're at. And he is in another period of preparing. But this is for the second coming. And I don't know whether it will be a year from now or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, but I do know this. We are a day closer today than we were yesterday. And I'm okay with that. Let's pray.